0: Hi everyone, my name is Ryan Alexander and I serve as the lead pastor at Hosanna As we've been saying for years we believe the Lord led you here and we hope that what you hear today will encourage you to take a step forward in your faith journey and help you look more like Jesus After today's message I encourage you to download the Hosanna app for more opportunities to connect and grow Here's today's message well, good morning everyone. My name is Per Nilsson. I'm one of the pastors here at Hosanna and uh, welcome to all of those who are worshiping with us for the first time or in the uh, native language of my ethnic homeland, Velkommen. Velkommen. Yeah, or or it's actually the language. I come from Norway and it's actually that same language is from the land to the east of Norway as well. Sweden. Sweden. By, by the way, Did you guys read the recent article that came out that they finally determined Jesus could not have been born in Norway? (laughs) I I was kind of bummed when I initially saw that headline, but then I started reading the article and I chuckled, they have found absolutely no wise men to the east. (laughs) I told that joke to a Swedish friend of mine and without even blinking an eye, he said, oh, I thought it was because there are no virgins in Norway. (laughs) <laughs> I know that's terrible. Shouldn't be told on a Sunday morning. I get that. <laughs> hey, one of the beautiful things, just beautiful things about the hope that we've been proclaiming to all of you the past three weeks a hope that's found in a, in a child born in a humble stable to a common couple uh, through a divine encounter with a very, very uncommon God, uh, is that this hope, this hope, is not defined by geographic realities or cultural identities. Uh, This hope is not defined at all by personal perspectives or philosophical musings. This hope is defined by a God of great expectation by a God who, as Pastor Jason talked about, pulls up alongside of us and invites us on board when we're floating aimlessly in the sea of life looking for something in the future. By a God who is confident in the future because he knows the future, he understands the future. By the way, if, if you've missed the messages for these past three weeks, let me encourage you to get back and watch those, they're really, really good. And And just like we put on layers to fight against the wintry cold, it's always good to put on layers of hope to fight against those winter-like seasons in our life. So our exploration of hope continues today by bringing us to the 21st chapter in the book of Revelation. If you've got your Bible with you, please turn to the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation And a picture is painted that really grounds us in the significance of hope. And as you're turning to the 21st chapter in Revelation, let me give you a definition of hope. Hope is an optimistic state of mind and position of the heart that is based on an expectation of positive outcomes with respect to events and circumstances in one's life or the world at large. And one of the unique elements about being a Christian is that Christianity Christianity espouses an idea of hope that emerges from the living God. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 15, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is this hope that anchors the Christian life Against the cultural winds that seek to blow us off course, against the drowning floods of emotion and despair that overcome us sometimes, and against the earthquakes that shake us to the very core. Think about it this way. Uh, this is a picture of the Petronas Towers. The Petronas Towers are in Malaysia, and the Petronas Towers are one of the tallest buildings in the world, uh, 21st on the list of tallest buildings in the world. What is unique about these buildings is that they're built on unbelievably unstable ground. And so the engineers had to find a way to stabilize the building. And the only way that they could design and build these massive structures is by anchoring them to the bedrock below. In one place, they had to go down 530 feet, 530 feet to anchor to the bedrock below, nearly two football fields. So let me ask you a question. How deep are the foundations of hope in your life? How deep are they? What is your life anchored to? Jesus himself talks about this idea in Matthew 7. Here's what he says Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Here's something that's true about the book of Revelation. By proclaiming God's eternal vision that is grounded in Jesus' historical reality, John brings hope to the writer or to the individuals of his time. John brings hope to the individuals of his time, individuals who are going through enormous persecution, persecution that most of us have never, ever encountered in our lives. And that same hope. Has fed the lives of billions of Christians since that point in time. Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. As Pastor Ryan mentioned last week of uh, revelation is both literal and symbolic. Revelation uses pictures, metaphors, to create uh, to convey truths, to, to bring across ideas, to help people understand. Jesus did the same thing by using parables. And so in Revelation 21, our eyes are quickly drawn to this image of new things. Three images that compel our eyes of faith to look out into the future with hope. There's a new heaven, there's a new earth, there's a new Jerusalem. These images point to an eternal reality where where renewal is complete, where relationships are whole, where restoration is fulfilled, where heaven and earth are one. We just prayed about that. We pray about it all the time. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because of the work of Jesus, complete restoration is possible. The creation that we live in that has been tainted by and and shattered by and broken by and scarred by sin will be completely restored. That's the promise of Jesus. The paradise of Eden that has been lost Will be experienced again. And this complete restoration includes a new spiritual reality for us. John continues, verse three I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. Now, You might say, well, isn't that what Jesus promised when he left his disciples? Lo, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. What what John is talking about here brings that promise to fulfillment in a physical sense in the same way that those disciples experienced Jesus after he was raised from the dead, in the same way that Adam and Eve in the very beginning of the creation story walked with God and talked with God. In the same way that these disciples, that people have encountered the living God throughout the ages. And what's so beautiful about this presence, this living, breathing presence, is that it carries outcomes with it that are attractive to all people, believers and and unbelievers alike. Listen to verse four. Verse four says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things will be gone forever. Say forever, church. Forever. With all the questions and chaos and challenges and discouragement and uncertainty in life, who wouldn't want that as an eternal outcome? Those things are gone forever. This new heaven, this new earth, this spiritual reality is a place where God himself will personally comfort the brokenhearted. I imagine God standing face to face and reaching up and, and wiping every tear from our eye while he gently but confidently says it's finished. No more, no more death. No more sorrow. No more pain. No more torment. No more crying. Now, I don't know how the God of all creation is going to be able to do that. All I know is this that that with God, all things are possible. Uh, My wife, Mary, actually watched God engage with uh, our oldest son, Bjorn, when he was a young boy. Um, Mary was praying with him one evening when we were living out in upstate New York and he was his usual inattentive self when we were trying to pray. Anybody got kids like that when you're trying to pray with them? They're just inattentive. And all of a sudden, he stops and he raises his head up and he looks up toward the window and then he turns to Mary and he says, Mommy, God came down and kissed me right here. That's the God we're talking about. That has that level of personal interest in each and every one of you. Each and every one of you. Our God, the God who created the heavens and the earth is passionately interested in your life, in your tears, in your restoration, in your reconciliation. And so he proclaims in verse five, look, I am making everything New. Now, this is the fourth time in five verses that John has used this term new, referring to what will come. Two weeks ago, Pastor Jason spoke about the already but not yet of God's kingdom. And one of the implications of this already but not yet of God's kingdom is that we are find ourselves on a journey. We recognize that we are on a journey that occurs over time and concludes with the events when Jesus comes again at the end of time to judge the living and the dead. Restoration, making everything new, is a process for people like you and me that that began with the prophecies that led up to the birth of a child, the fulfillment of those messianic prophecies, a birth that we're going to celebrate here in just a couple of weeks, It continued with this baby named Jesus establishing a new covenant based upon grace and forgiveness and the invitation to believe. And it comes to conclusion at the end of time as we know it, as we understand it. So the Apostle Paul saw this and understood it. And he connects this transformative process on this side of eternity, but in relationship to eternity. Here's what he says in Corinthians 4. Verses 16 through 18, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now, rather we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. So Revelation reminds us that in the meantime, the time between now and then, renewal, restoration, reconciliation is taking place in your life and in mine. Verse six continues. He also said, it is finished. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You may have heard that before in in the very first message on Revelation. This is a reflection back to Revelation 1.8. And it's a reminder that Jesus covers all things. It's a bookend of sorts, inviting the reader to consider their place in this larger scope of human history, of world history, of universal history that we are all a part of and that Jesus oversees. And that no matter what our circumstances, geography, age, or background, Jesus can be the anchor, the foundation of your hope. And then comes something remarkable. And it really is remarkable. All of a sudden, John draws together three promises that summarize everything he's been talking about to this point in time. Here they are, promise number one, verse six. To all who are thirsty... I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. I read a shocking statistic the other day. 75% of all Americans walk around dehydrated. 75%. If that's true physically, how many people do you think are walking around spiritually dehydrated? Dry, parched, spiritually thirsty. Friend, if if that's you today, I want you to hear one simple statement. If you're thirsty, if your spiritual life is dry, if your spiritual life is parched, Jesus invites you to come and drink from the water of life, to come and drink from the living water that only he can bring. It's living water that will quench your thirst. And Jesus just says, come and drink. It's free. It's yours for the taking. Promise number two, verse seven. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. So uh, did you guys know that tennis shoes are mentioned in the Bible? They are. They are mentioned in the Bible. Nike is mentioned in the Bible. And here's how it fits in this passage. All who are Nikeo, that's the Greek term, Nikeo, will inherit all these blessings. It's translated as victory or victorious. So anytime you read that term victory or victorious in the Bible, think about Nike because that's the actual Greek term. All who are Nikeo will inherit these blessings, the blessings of new life and restoration and and renewal. But but then that begs the question, so so then what are we victorious over? You're victorious over the sin that confronts you and, and the temptation that allures you and the attitudes that derail you and the mind games that assail you. And the mystery of faith is this, that this victory, because of Jesus, is something that is given to you because of his death on the cross and resurrection to new life. The issue is, will you receive it? And then will you live it? So anybody here need victory over something today? Will you receive the victory of Jesus? Will you live the victory of Jesus? Promise number three, verse seven. I will be their God and they will be my children. Now, this is really the most intimate of the promises. It's it's all about your identity in the family of God, as a child of God. It reminds us that the outcome of faith is a personal relationship with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A deep and an abiding relationship. Three promises for you. Ground your hope in the bedrock of God's faithfulness. There's water for the thirsty, blessings for the victorious, identity for the faithful. One of the things that that the Bible and and faith have revealed to me and and to many, many others over time is that when followers of Jesus talk about hope, it's not just a generic, non-substantial hope. It has substance. It's tied to something, to someone. And it raises an important question. It raises the question of, well, what about those who don't ground their hope in the bedrock of God's faithfulness? What about those who dismiss or deny the person of Jesus? Honestly, that's one of those things we don't like to talk about much, and and yet amidst the promises of a new heaven and a new earth and a a new Jerusalem, amidst the promises of living water for the thirsty and blessing for the victorious and, and identity for the faithful is a contrasting statement. Here's what it says in verse 8. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So this is one of the places in Scripture where eternal conversation uh, is just vitally important. Conversation about eternal consequences becomes very real. And as I stated before, we don't like to talk about it. Um, we just don't like to talk about it. And, and typically when we do talk about it, one of two things happens. Um, one, we just kind of gloss over any eternal consequences or implications by saying, well, everybody's a good person. And because everybody's a good person, God will take care of them. Or we jump to the opposite extreme. And we get very judgmental and very critical when it comes to this conversation of eternity. So with all humility and with boldness, I just simply want to note three things that are important about this conversation about eternal consequences. Number one, the list of sin contained in verse eight is reflective of the world, but it's not exhaustive of the world. In other words, at some level, every one of us finds ourselves facing that negative eternal consequence, that negative fate. But that's where the good news of God and the person of Jesus comes in. That's why he gave his life. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to condemn the world but that the world might have life through him. The Apostle Paul reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. But the good news of God in Jesus Christ presents the opportunity to change the outcome of our eternal story. Number two, the claims of Christianity in this arena are both inclusive, everyone is invited, and they're exclusive. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. Quite often, Christianity gets negatively critiqued for that claim, that that exclusive claim. But it's important to note that the claim of exclusivity is not unique to Christianity at all. In fact, Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and even atheists make exclusive claims. Christianity isn't exclusively exclusive. But Christianity does have a unique perspective. And that unique perspective, the unique claim of Christianity is that our inclusivity, the inclusive invitation, and our exclusivity is all around the person of Jesus who actually lived, lived a sinless life, yet died a sinner's death and was raised to exhibit the power of God over death and eternity. Number three. The scriptures talk about eternal consequences. Jesus talks about eternal consequences. There's there's really no debating the nature of eternal consequences. The question is, what are those consequences, positive and negative, and, and how are they distributed? Having said that, along with a new heaven and a new earth, the scriptures also describe a place of eternal separation from God, a place of anguish and torment place that we call hell. And we know from 2 Peter 3.9 that, that God's heart is patient. That God does not want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to repent and turn to him and be saved. Yet some don't. Some in their free will, a free will that is absolutely necessary for us to be able to live in loving relationships some, in their free will, choose to reject God. They have the option of receiving or rejecting, and they choose to reject God. They choose to reject the inclusive invitation of Jesus. And the scriptures tell us there's, there's a not-so-pleasant eternity for those who do reject God. A poignant picture of this is Jesus on the cross with two thieves. One of those thieves acknowledges who he is. One of them does not. Jesus turns to the one who acknowledges the truth and gives a promise today you will be with me in paradise. The other does not receive that promise. So, how does this all correlate to hope? Here's what we have to say about hope. The hope that Jesus offers acknowledges these realities, these challenging eternal realities. In this sense, hope is not this idealistic, fluffy unicorns and rainbows. Everybody gets a participation trophy kind of hope. Hope is bold and it's purposeful. It's invitationally exclusive and faithfully exclusive. It's grounded in what is believed and how belief motivates behavior amidst the cultural winds that seek to blow us off course and the floods of emotion and despair and the earthquakes that shake us to the core. Ultimately, this hope is grounded in who Jesus is and what he has done. It's grounded in the rock of our salvation. Psalm 62 says it well. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. You see, that's, that's what those 530-foot-deep foundations allow the Petronas Towers to do, anchoring what is above the ground to what is below the ground so that they can continue to shine light when it's dark, And even when the ground around them is unstable. Now with that picture in mind, with that light shining in the dark, listen to how Revelation 21 concludes. I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon for the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there. Hope anchored to the rock of Jesus has a public expression, and it draws people to it even in the darkest times. This hope is both eternal and available today. It is not yet completely fulfilled, and yet it is already there. So many of you know my story. Um, It was, in fact, this inclusive invitation to an exclusive hope that Jesus can give that ultimately gave me new life. I was the basement of a drug treatment center when I was 17 years old, when the hope of Jesus changed my life. And what emerged that night was a poem that described what had happened in my heart. Here's what I wrote on that night when I was 17. Christmas in December without a drink in hand is something to remember for me and the rest of my band. They're coming here on Monday to make my Christmas fine, but with them or without them, this Christmas will be mine. For now I've come in touch with God, what he came to give. Now like Jesus, I am born, now I start to live. That was Christmas Eve 1978. And at that moment, hope was both immediate and it was futuristic. It was humbling and it was motivational, it was catalytic. Little was I to know that the light from that moment would shine across 43 years and break into the darkness of addiction that was confessed by my son, Bjorn. I received a call from Bjorn last year on December 21st, asking if I could talk about some marriage-related issues Uh, Bjorn and his wife, Rachel, had got married on the 10th of December amidst that massive snowstorm. You remember that? 17 inches of snow. And and I've got to tell you, uh, there's a real fine line between the beauty of snow falling and the chaos it causes. And honestly, it was a perfect metaphor for what was to come. Bjorn and I met on December 22nd, and he sat down with me and he looked me in the eye and Through a veil of tears, he said, Dad, I'm an alcoholic. Between the wedding on December 10th and the 21st of December, all kinds of darkness had been revealed in his life. All kinds of hidden secrets that go along with addiction had emerged. Even though he had been sober that time, all of these things came bubbling up to the surface. And... All I could do was hold my son when he cried. All I could do was share with him two things that I knew the never failing love that was there for him from me, his mom Mary, his brother Christian, and the eternal hope of Jesus. I could save his life and save. His marriage when the sobbing faded I pulled him in just a little bit closer and I whispered in his ear Bjorn Christmas in December without a drink in hand something to remember for you and the rest of your band for now you've come in touch with God and what he came to give Now like Jesus, you're born, now you start to live. I asked Bjorn and Rachel if I could share part of their story with you today, and they said, absolutely, yes. Because more than anything, we want people to know about the transformative power found in the hope of Jesus Christ. Last night, We had the privilege, on the 10th of December, no snow falling, (laughs) of celebrating their marriage anniversary and Bjorn's one-year celebration of sobriety. This is a hope that's eternal and present Not yet, but already. This is the hope that stabilizes the Christian life and the cultural winds that seek to blow us off course, the drowning floods of emotion and despair and the earthquakes that shake us to the core. This is the hope that gives water to the thirsty, blessings to the victorious and identity to the faithful. This is the hope that dispels darkness and lights the way. This dear church as Christmas hope, hope found in a baby born, a baby named Jesus. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for hope given. I Thank you for the power of your grace. I thank you, Lord, for the invitation to come and follow, to receive you as Lord and Savior and I ask, Lord God, that each and every person here would hear that invitation in the very depth of their soul. Lord, I pray for those individuals who are struggling with cultural winds that are trying to blow them off course and drowning floods of emotion and despair and earthquakes that are shaking them to the core. Lord, I, I pray for those who are thirsty and those who have overcome and are victorious, and and those who are yearning for an identity. And I pray in the power of your Holy Spirit that you would come upon them and remind them of your goodness, the faithfulness, and the hope that only you can bring. And I thank you, God, for the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony that allows us to convey these truths in a very, very real way bringing hope to this world. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And everyone said, amen, amen.